Welcome to Guns, Knives, and Lipstick, Episode 8. We're your hosts, Carrie Peresta, C.L. Tolbert, Mally Becker, and Liz Miller. Poison. The very word sends shivers down the spine and delights the average mystery writer. Which do you use? How fast does it work? Can poisons be detected? Not questions you could ask just anybody. Fortunately, the mystery community has a wonderful resource. Lucy Zare, also known as the Poison Lady, has presented at Malice Domestic and VoucherCon, where she's held forth on a variety of poisonous topics, from the delights of arsenic to the poisons you can find in your own garage or garden. A pharmacologist by trade and a self-made toxicologist, Lucy is a crime writer's best friend when it comes to the world of poison. So how would she answer those questions posed earlier? Let's dive in and find out. Hello, here we are again. Hello, good to be here. I hope you're all staying warm because I know we were talking before I hit record. Some of us have very frigid temperatures. Some of us have temperatures that just feel frigid. But in any case, we're all going to be warm, right? Yes, we're all warm. (laughs) Well, we are thrilled. Uh, We have Lucy and I forgot to ask you before. Zare, is that how you pronounce your last name? Zare, that's correct. Well, we have Lucy Zare with us today, uh, otherwise known as the Poison Lady. If you've ever been to a Malice Domestic, um, have you been at VoucherCon? I, I have. Okay, so if you've been to a Malice Domestic or a VoucherCon, you may have attended a session by Lucy where she expounds on all things poisonous and scares everybody to bits with how much poisonous stuff we live with in our day to day lives. Mm. And then gives anybody who's like living with us uh the heebie-jeebies because they realize how easy it would be for one of us to just (laughs) go nuts bump somebody off yeah don't make us mad yeah don't make us mad exactly so we're going to just ask questions um lucy and we're going to let you go and hopefully Anybody listening in the audience will have all of their, well, they won't have all their questions answered, but they'll have a lot of their questions answered. Okay. So I'll start off. Just tell us really briefly how you got into this. Like what brought you into the, made you think, you know what? I want to be an expert on poison. Um, I went to pharmacy school and graduated and I was pretty young. Uh, about 20 and I wasn't really ready to be an adult yet and I had had a blast in the one toxicology course that I had taken so I decided that I wasn't ready to be an adult yet and so I applied to graduate school in uh, at Texas A&M University in toxicology and they let me in and I had a really good time and I never really, I have worked as a toxicologist, but most of my working life, I was a pharmacist, but I started going to Malice Domestic and we would sit around the lunch table and the authors would all share that they really didn't like having to use guns or knives or blunt instruments. They wanted something more subtle, but they didn't have anybody to tell them about poisons and you know, in the middle of this conversation, I went, wait, I can do that. 
And so we started so doing awesome. it. And I've been doing it now for about 25 or 26 years. And wow. Um, we come up with new poisons or we go back and revisit <laughs> old ones. Uh, just depends on what it is. You know, I haven't, we haven't had any conventions for the last couple of years, so I haven't done anything. So we may go back and revisit the classic uh, big three, arsenic, strychnine, and cyanide at Malice this year. Although we may do something else, you never know. Well, the classics are the classics for a reason, right? They are. Because they work. Because arsenic, work. strychnine, and what? Cyanide. Cyanide. Okay. Cool. Because they're yes, still easy my... to get because yeah. you, they work. Um, there's no special, real special knowledge uh, needed for them, although there is lots of easy information to get out there. And if I start talking about arsenic, we'll be talking about arsenic a month from now. Wow. It was good enough for Agatha Christie. It's good enough for the rest of us, right? That's right. Right. Yep. Um, well, that's awesome. So, Mally, why don't you go next? Uh, so, so Lucy, thank thank you again. Um, we're we're so excited to have you here talking about poison. Uh, my husband looked at me like I was crazy when I told him how <laughs> happy this was making me. I think he's a little worried. Um, so, so what what household items? make the best poison for a, a fictional murderer? And, and by best, I mean easiest to use or undetectable, however you want to answer that. Um, you know, household poisons, there's a lot of stuff that's in most people's houses, but probably the easiest thing to use is methanol, which um, when hand sanitizers first came out, like two years ago now, they were all methanol based and they had to take them off the market because people were drinking them. And it does <laughs> not take much methanol. Well, you know, a cheap alcohol is a cheap alcohol. Oh, yeah. You could buy a pint of methanol based hand sanitizer for oh. about $2. Oh my and goodness. It only wow, takes about a, yeah. a couple of teaspoons to cause irreparable blindness. And then mm. a couple of more teaspoons to cause irreparable kidney failure and death. So it was a big problem. And now we all know that most hand sanitizers are ethanol and they're still drinking them. Oh my goodness. Wow. What would be initial symptoms of methanol poisoning? You know, before uh, you got to the dead part or kidney <laughs> shot. And originally you would have pretty much the same symptoms of any kind of alcohol poisoning it would be um, nausea, vomiting, some uh, disorientation, dizziness, hallucinations, maybe um, a, lot, um, a lot like plain old alcohol because of course it is a one carbon alcohol whereas ethanol is just a two carbon alcohol. But it does cause, um, it kills the retin the nerve that, that leads to vision, the optic nerve. So uh, it causes irreparable blindness at very small doses, basically a teaspoonful. So oh my gosh. that's just an unbelievable, a small dose because it doesn't taste like anything. It just tastes like alcohol. And so you can get a, a teaspoon from almost anything 
And of course, it wasn't just hand sanitizers that methanol is in. It's used in a lot of things like carburetor cleaners or uh, carburetor fluid. Um, it's sort of a very cheap alternative to propylene glycol, which is, of course, another really good poison. It um, is the principal ingredient in most older antifreeze. And if you were to go someplace like the Dollar General store and buy antifreeze, well, then you're going to get propylene glycol. And the toxic dose for that is about an ounce. And again, it has a very sweet alcoholic flavor. So it's uh, very easy to hide in anything. Um, it causes renal failure, can cause some liver failure. Um, it's really funny because when I lived in Michigan, the most common um, poisoning that we saw in our ER was propylene glycol or antifreeze. Whereas when I lived in and worked in Texas, the most common overdose we saw was generally speaking acetaminophen. Not a lot of uh, uh, antifreeze overdoses here in the deep south. How much acetaminophen? How much acetaminophen is uh, damaging? Okay, the acetaminophen, the LD50, which is the lethal dose 50% of the time, has been decreased about three times in the last 20 years. It started off at about 20 grams, which would be 40 extra strength tablets. Then it was decreased to um, 12 grams, 24 extra strength tablets. And now it's generally considered to be about eight grams, 16 extra strength tablets. And if you're a patient in any hospital that I've ever worked in, the daily dose is limited to four grams because it's an ingredient in many different compounds. So you would have uh, acetaminophen that would be used for fever, but you would have it in uh, most of your pain relief medicines, Percocet, uh, Narco, all of those mm -hmm. contain acetaminophen. In fact, a number of years ago, the FDA decreased the amount of acetaminophen that could be in, say, Vicodin or Narco or Percodan from 650 milligrams to 325 milligrams because people were getting overdoses just by taking their pain medicine in the hospital. Wow. It, so yeah, it was a big I, concern. I remember I had, I don't know, I had my wisdom teeth out or I had something they prescribed Vicodin and they warned me not to take, you know, to follow the dosing instructions very. Okay, I can't lost, hear you. Lost your audio, Mary. <laughs> Again, you'll die from the acetaminophen um, long before you have a problem with the opioid. That's true. Wow. And when wow. you get an opioid overdose, the first thing you have to treat and be aware of is the acetaminophen. It's less likely now that they've uh, lowered the total dose of acetaminophen in most opioids. But for a long time, that was your principal concern when they came in. Hmm. Wow. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. I personally am not a big acetaminophen fan, and I consider it probably the most dangerous drug in anyone's home, not because it's the most toxic drug in your home, but because it has a perception of safety 
and it's a hidden ingredient in so many other things. So you might be taking acetaminophen for a headache, but you might be taking something because you have cold symptoms or allergy symptoms. You mm -hmm. might be taking it at night because you have a backache when you get ready to go to bed or something mm -hmm. like Tylenol PM, which has an ingredient in it that helps you fall asleep. So mm -hmm. it's just a hidden ingredient in so many things and it's very easy to get an overdose. Okay, I'm taking my husband off his acetaminophen immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and of no. course, one of the ways to kill somebody is, oh, honey, you look like you've had such a hard day. Let me fix you a drink and bring you some Tylenol because uh -huh. Tylenol and alcohol are synergistic drugs, which means they work better together than either one alone. So they're not additive, but they multiply each other. And the toxicity is also multiplied. Wow. Okay, I'll remember not to take two Tylenol with a with a glass of wine chaser. Note to self. Oh, but that's man. that's scary. It's a great methodology though for a, a mystery writer. Mm -hmm. Sure. Probably because the victim would not even know. Like nobody, I, I, I nobody would know. A very typical case is something that happened in the hospital where I work. So, I mean, this happened in real life. So it's very common. A young woman who was, a, a, I worked in Waco, which is where Baylor University is. So a young woman went off on a Thursday night, ladies night, went to the bar and had several drinks and she came back to her dorm room and she didn't wanna be hungover or have a headache for her Friday morning classes. So she drank a big glass of water and took a handful of Tylenol. She woke up in the middle of the night, had a little headache. So she drank another glass of water and took another handful of Tylenol. Well, mm -hmm. she spent the weekend in our hospital getting the antidote to Tylenol poisoning because she was sicker than a dog when she got up Monday. And when she went to the health center and told them what they did, that she had done, they immediately sent her to our ER for the antidote treatment, because the antidote takes a while. You have to give it over several hours. They, they couldn't do it at the health center. And that was not an uncommon scenario, so much so that in freshman orientation, they warn students not to do that. Wow. Hmm. What about ibuprofen? Ibuprofen doesn't have the same kind of toxicity, and the toxicity that it has is much greater you have to take probably, well, 3,200 milligrams, which is 16 of the ibuprofen that you can buy over the counter is the anti-inflammatory dose. So that's 2,400 milligrams to 3,200 milligrams is how much you take just for an anti-inflammatory effect. So the toxic dose is much higher. You do, you can see some chronic effects at the very high doses, which is why they recommend that you don't take it for more than a week or two without uh, your doctor's advice, because you can get some uh, stomach bleeding and some other effects and some uh, liver, well, not liver, some kidney toxicity, if you already have some problems going on there with long-term mm -hmm. high dose use. Okay. Thanks. Okay, now that we've all been scared into not buying Tylenol. 
Oh my gosh. Cindy, when you're up. Okay. Um, I was, I think I'm going to skip down to the last two questions. <clears throat> um, I'm a retired attorney like Mally, and I had a case one time where I was representing a um, owner of a, of a um, hotel and one of their massage therapists got sued because the lady said he had put something in the massage oil that it, it caused her to become paralyzed or unable to move and um, had been inappropriate. And so we went to trial on that one. We had some toxicologists who said that that was impossible. And I believe their argument, this is several years ago, was a dose-based argument. Um, so I was wondering whether you knew of any um, substance, whether it's a botanical or um, some other kind of chemical or something found in industry or anything that could be um, applied to the skin either directly or um, through an oil or a lotion that would render someone, that would be fatal or that could paralyze someone temporarily. And the paralysis part is relatively difficult because the muscles that you need to breathe uh, can't be paralyzed as well. However, making someone have temporary amnesia so that they don't remember or don't know what's going on or make them so uh, drugged up that they're compliant is not particularly hard. There are a number of plant-based poisons that could be used in that way. Typically, um, scopolamine, which is from henbane and is another name for hyacinine, is sort of a, uh, it's not quite as effective as rohypnol, but it is effective and it does make the person sort of uh, drugged up and compliant and not able to fight off her attackers uh, as easily and has been used in that way. And of course, it's a plant that you can grow in your yard. You can go on the internet and buy the seeds and you can't really go to the nursery and buy the plants. You have to start it from seed, but it's not at all hard to grow. Is I that, have- Is that the motion sickness drug? Yes, it is the motion sickness drug. So yeah. it's- um, very small doses, 1.5 milligrams are put on a patch that can go behind your ear so that you don't get motion sickness. But you can see occasionally people will complain of dry mouth or urinary retention or being flushed or feeling hot or um, when they use scopolamine because some people are extremely sensitive to it. Okay. All right. Is there anything that can be that, that could be applied to the skin that would be fatal? Scopolamine would be fatal uh, at a high enough dose. Okay. And any of the atropine alkaloids, which are, if you have henbane or datura or um, any of the other plants that have the atropine type alkaloids in them, uh, it's going to be a mixture of the alkaloids. They all they are all present in most of those plants, and uh, there's some really fun mnemonics for remembering those uh, things. Okay. And atropine is really a, a pretty good poison to get um, uh, 
Um, but anyways, some of the mnemonics are, you know, I would not have that piece of paper in front of me. Here it so is. And Blind as a bat, mad okay. as a hatter, dry as a bone, the bowel and bladder lose their tone, the heart runs alone. So you get an increased heart rate, your mouth is dry, you have hallucinations and uh, you see things and hear things. Um, their pupils are dilated so you don't see very well. The oh. short version of that is can't see, can't pee, can't spit, can't shit. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, okay. <laughs> the other, there's three of these. And so the other one, it's eats a little, goes to sleep, eats some more, has a dream because it's an hallucinogenic. Yeah. And eats, eats yet more, don't wake up. So mm -hmm. it's a, and it is grows as a weed around here. Okay. I gave a lecture on this and gave away seeds. So I gave away all my seeds and had to grow some more. Took me about seven years to get it weeded out of my garden because it kept coming back. You get one seed anywhere, then it, you'll have a plant that will produce pounds of seeds. And the wow. seeds look like, you know, those red pepper flakes you put on your pizza or your, your Italian food? Yes. Well, the seeds look like brown, look just like those except they're brown so if you put chili powder on them and toasted them in your oven they look exactly like the red pepper flakes oh my goodness goodness and this is what are we talking about are we talking about atropine atropine is one of the ingredients but we're talking about um well i was sort of talking about datura which is okay. uh jimson weed you know from jamestown poisoning okay. uh Henbane. Mm -hmm. Henbane, um, doTERRA, and then I put down alkaloids. And it is, that they are alkaloids. So you get atropine, you get hyacinine, you get uh, hyacinine is another name for scopolamine and hyacin. So they're all similar alkaloids to atropine. They all basically had the same mechanism of action they're just a little okay. bit structurally different from each other. Did you say okay. hyacinths? Hyacinth. That's oh, hyacinth. it. Hyacinth okay. is a chemical name. Okay. Now, Diana, I, I have hyacinths in my front yard, in my front garden. I was going to be like, okay, <laughs> I didn't know I was growing dangerous plants. Dad, you probably have dangerous plants growing in your yard. Oh, um, I'm sure I do. I'm sure I do. Does the fact something is absorbed to the skin change the chemical compounds half-life at all? It does. The fastest way for something to be absorbed into the body is generally speaking inhalation because the lungs have a great surface area, a large surface area, or by injection straight into a vein. Right. But the slowest way, then orally, then through a mucous membrane, and then finally through skin. So skin slows down the absorption. Although if you have a braided skin, uh, say you put your compound on a Band-Aid and put it over a scraped elbow or knee, that'll speed up absorption. But skin is generally speaking the slowest form unless 
you put it in hand lotion and spread it all over your body. And then of course you've got a very large surface area. So uh, just by the fact that it's over a large surface area, you get a greater absorption. But most things are, you know, uh, patches that people can put on their skin are very popular because they're easy. You don't usually have to put them on every day. They last for several days. Um, you bypass the stomach, so you usually bypass most of the side effects that are, are nausea and vomiting and diarrhea and things like that because you're going directly into your body and not through the stomach first. So um, patches are a very popular way to administer a drug. Okay, that's true. Can I go back to the body lotion for a moment? Sure. <laughs> What, what, which of those alkaloids could you, um, I guess, liquefy to some degree and mix with body lotion so that it, it wouldn't be noticeable? All of them. Wow. And it's not hard at all to extract these from the plants. You would just basically make a tea and then concentrate it down. Um, so you just let it steep in water or if you had uh, the tourists say, for example, the highest concentration are in the seeds and in the leaves. So you could just express the leaves and, and get uh, the juice out of them and put it in the hand lotion. And then you, it does sort of have a musty smell mm -hmm. that some people can notice, but it's not a very strong odor. So it would be easy to hide with lemon or lavender or any of the other scented hand lotions. Lucy, if you, if you find three or four mystery novels with um, body lotion poisons in them, <laughs> you'll, you'll know who where they came from. Yeah, oh, wow. You were the expression. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you so much, Lucy. I appreciate your answering those questions. All right, Carrie, what you got? Uh, well, I just lost the question. So that would bring us back to question number three. I'm sorry, I jumped out of line there. Well, I'm very interested in, um, I have had in one of my books, an assault and used Rohypnol. And so what I'm wondering is one, what is the makeup of Rohypnol? And is it overused? And also, is there any more current edgy drugs? Like what are the latest flavor of drugs that are used on women these days in order to take advantage of them? Terrible question, but I just wonder. Well, I think Rohypnol is still very popular and not terribly difficult to get hold of. Ketamine is also uh, used, but is much harder to get hold of. Um, basically, you have to steal the ketamine from some other source, um, and it's pretty tightly locked up in most sources. They would be a hospital, uh, possibly some kinds of day surgery centers, um, veterinary clinics, maybe, um, but it's pretty tightly controlled. So Rohypnol is actually fairly easy to get, and if you can't get hold of Rohypnol, then generally speaking, any of the benzodiazepines mixed with alcohol will work. Things like Valium, Xanax, Ativan, 
drugs that are used for anti-anxieties, um, they have a central effect on the brain. And if they lower your anxiety at a much higher dose, and it would be a much higher dose, they can inhibit your abilities to protect yourself, to fight off an attacker, even to say no at mm -hmm. a, a particularly high dose. What, uh, so the normal antidepressant drugs, what kind of dose would uh, cause someone to be impaired? Um, it depends on the person again, and it's not usually the antidepressants, it's the anti-anxiety drugs. And okay. if you're seeing a dose of say 0 0.25 milligrams as an anti-anxiety dose, well, then you would see impairment at probably 25 milligrams. So uh, 100 times the dose, 10 times, uh, 10 times, 100 times the dose. Yeah. So, so you'd have to crunch them up that much. You'd so, have to so crunch have... them up or mix them in alcohol, something uh -huh. like that. Okay. And really, you'd probably find somebody in, who was drug naive. They hadn't been exposed to the drug before, being uh -huh. fairly well impaired at three or four milligrams. And four milligrams would be, say, 16 tablets. Uh -huh. So not a lot. Most prescriptions okay. are for 60 or more. So not a lot. So what would be, would there be an advantage to rohypnol over something like that? No, not particularly. Um, they're actually sort of in the same class of family in that anti-anxiety. Uh, it's just the drug, rohypnol is a little stronger than most of the things you use for other purposes. Okay. Okay, great. That's all I had, guys. And I'm still looking for the list of questions. So go on ahead. So I'll go back to something you mentioned earlier, Lucy, when I said, you know, You've got poisonous plants growing all around your house. So what, what are some of these plants? Like that people could just wander out their backyard. What are they likely to find around their if, house that maybe they didn't know was dangerous? If you live in Texas, then we have uh, problems with the heat. So we don't have as many poisonous plants as you would have in the North, but we have, I have in my garden, Datura, Henbane, Hemlock, um, Lily of the Valley, Oleander, um, Monk's Hood. Monk's Hood is the most common, uh, is the most poisonous common garden plant in the United States, States, in the northern part of the United States, Monk's Hood, and the most poisonous garden plant in Great Britain. Wow. So y'all would have a lot more access to it than I do. I have to grow mine every year. Uh, it doesn't come back. I have to grow it every year. But down here, we would have things like poke, poke salad that um, you wouldn't have in the north because it wouldn't grow in the north. Um, but um, you would probably have lily of the valley. I mean, when I lived in Michigan, it grew everywhere. You mean just plain old lilies, day lilies? No, not no, lily, lily of the valley. Lily of the valley. Little, okay, I don't know the difference. Like, yeah, little white bell-like flowers, I, right? Oh, okay. They're really okay. beautiful little white bell-like flowers. 
they grow I, we, like a weed. I'm and in South Carolina. It's just fox. Isn't that foxglove? Foxglove is another of the cardiac glycosides. So lily of the valley, foxglove, oleander, those are all what we call cardiac glycosides. So they have oh, one end of the molecule works on the heart and the other end of the molecule is a sugar, which makes it water soluble, gives it a slightly sweet taste, makes it a little more stable. Um, wow. So these are really beautiful plants that grow everywhere. Oh, we my have it. Father, that mother have foxglove in their garden. They were shocked when I told them. I said, "You know that's a poison." Yeah, right. oh, it's so pretty. Oh, it's deadly. We we have oleander everywhere. So right. what do you just crush the flowers? How do you extract it? Um, generally speaking, it would be from the leaves, but oleander is so toxic that if you put the leaves or the flowers in water then the water will become toxic if you let it sit there overnight. But the wow. smoke from burning the garden rubbish, the waste is also toxic. Generally speaking, you say three leaves to kill a child, seven to kill a horse. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, that's why the deer, leave it alone. The deer won't touch the oleander. <laughs> no, they won't. Uh -uh. I, I see a oleander going everywhere. You know, it lines driveways. Um, Mm -hmm. our, mm -hmm. our oleander because we had a horrible winter last winter mostly died out but it's coming back from the roots so the oleanders that were 20 feet tall and 12 feet thick um, died back last year but they're now about four feet tall and and coming back i've heard that you should only use gloves when you handle oleander a plant um that would always be safe. If you don't know what a plant is, you pretty mm -hmm. much should assume that it would be a toxic plant. And okay. um, then wear gloves and be careful. Um, when There aren't a lot of plants that are poisonous when you burn them, but there are several. And there are several that um, are still toxic even after they wilted and so when they're in your compost pile and you think they're breaking down and that they're not toxic, they still can be. So you want to be careful even just turning over the compost pile or spreading the uh, partially decomposed matter. Mm. Well, that's good to know. Someone told me a story that they bees... The, the bees visit the oleander plants and oleander is so toxic. The honey that bees make after visiting oleander plants is toxic. Um, there's not much oleander toxicity seen from honey, but there are several other plants that the um, either the honey or the milk is. And in your area, it would probably be uh, azaleas are famous for that. Really? Buckeye. Some kinds of uh, hen bank, uh, buttercups, so the Datura, the Jimson weed, some kinds buttercups. of laurel. Um, buttercups, as in uh, those beautiful little yellow flowers that bloom in the spring. And buttercups. Yep. Rhododendrons are very famous for having toxic honey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The state flower, so the, so you mentioned laurel. I think the state flower of Pennsylvania is mountain laurel. Right. So would that 
have the same effect? Like honey, yes. Come did, yes. How cheese. <laughs> mountain laurels will break down. They have uh, cyanide glycosides in them. So the cyanide at one end of the molecule is attached to a sugar molecule. So instead of a cardiac effect, you see a cyanide effect. Oh. And it's particularly uh, potent in wilted leaf, uh, laurels. Oh, I don't think the state fathers founders thought about that at all when they chose mountain laurel as a state flower. Yeah. I, I never thought of gardening as a death-defying activity. No kidding. No, I kidding. love Where poison plants. There are so <laughs> many advantages to poison plants over some other poison. One, you don't have to go out and buy it. Two, yeah. you can find it growing in a weed somewhere in a pasture. So you don't even have to have it in your yard. Um, hmm. You can go to a garden uh, and find it and just cut off a few leaves and take it home. There's just, they're difficult to prove. They're readily available. They usually are potent, either fresh or dried. So you can have an old plant material that's been around for a while and it'll still be just as toxic, maybe a little less toxic than it was fresh, but it still be there. So it's, they're easy to get. I mean, I find plant poison plants growing in flower containers outside restaurants. You would not think that they would be there, but they're easy to grow. They usually are fairly pretty. So people do grow them all over the, the place. Mountain laurel is beautiful. Let's Actually, let's go one back. of my stories is set in the Laurel Highlands and mountain laurel is like all over the mountainsides, like, like masses of it. And so what about beautiful. tox screens? What about tox screens? How long does it stay in the system? And do the normal blood tox screens pick, pick that up? They wouldn't pick it up on, uh, you walk into the emergency room, they're gonna test you for aspirin, acetaminophen, opiates, benzodiazepines, cocaine, maybe LSD, depending on your symptoms. They're gonna test you for the drugs of abuse, tricyclic antidepressants, um, those kinds of things. Now, they can test for alkaloids and for cyanide glycosides and, and for cardiac glycosides, but they pretty much need to know what to look for. You can't just call the lab up and say, test for everything. That's okay. prohibitively expensive, and there's no one general test. You have specific tests for specific compounds or groups of compounds. So you could say test for an alkaloid. If somebody came in and said they saw their child eating a plant in their garden, they didn't know what the plant was, then they might be testing for, um, well, the first thing they do is to ask you what you had in your yard. But if you didn't know, or if you saw them eating it in a park or something, and kids put everything in their mouth. So that's not an uncommon event. Um, then they can start testing for some of the plant things and they'll find them if they're looking for them. Once they're in the body, they, death may not occur for a period of time. So then you're looking at symptoms. You know, if you have dilated pupils and you're having hallucinations, 
are complaining about uh, colors being off. Um, if you have a, a heart arrhythmia, then they might be looking at a cardiac glycoside and ER would be looking for um, a DIG overdose, which is the active ingredient in foxglove. And you see that not commonly, but probably two or three times a year, enough that they would be aware of it, that they would be looking for it, that most hospital uh, pharmacies would have the antidote and most labs would be easily able to run the diagnostic test for it. But you'd have to know to ask for it. But how long would it stay in the body? Um, now that depends on the drug. Cardiac glycosides okay. usually stay in the body for up to a week or two. Uh, oh. Things like oh. atropine, they, mm -hmm. they dissipate fairly quickly. So maybe something between 12 and 24 hours, maybe 48 hours if the dose was high enough or if there was some sort of liver impairment where it wasn't being metabolized very easily. Okay. So it would just depend. Okay. Thank you. Can, can I just go back to something you said, Lucy? You, you mentioned you've even seen poison plants in, in the planters outside of restaurants. Right. What, what were you thinking? What plant were you thinking of? I've seen Datura there. I've seen Lily of the Valley there. Mm -hmm. Because those plants are like weeds. They're really hard to kill. So that mm -hmm. makes them a good plant to put outside uh, a doorway in a big pot because they're just easily... Uh, easy to grow, but so mm -hmm. is nicotine. And you can see that growing outside restaurants sometimes. Um, you can see um, um, just had a mental blank there. Um, what about lantana? Is that a poison? It is a mild poison. It's not a particularly strong one, but it does okay. have some liver toxicity. What about marigolds? Marigolds are not particularly toxic, no, but vincas okay. are. And I uh, grow vincas. vincas a lot because they grow mm -hmm. so well down here in the heat and they're pretty drought tolerant. Mm -hmm. I just I wondered because the smell is similar for lantana and for marigolds if they were poisoned. Lantana is actually considered the most common poisonous plant in Florida. Ah. because they grow it for butterflies so it's mm -hmm. planted all over everywhere uh, mm -hmm. for migrations and it is actually along the southern um, parts of the United States where you see the butterflies uh, migrating migrate yes it's, yep. it's a good food source for them we are in South Carolina so we have lantana everywhere down here we have it here too. And the garden societies will hand it out because they want you to grow it. Yeah, because it attracts butterflies. Yep. And hummingbirds. Yep. Yep. Grow, grow this thing. It's a mild poison, but don't put it attracts the <laughs> So grow this Mild thing. poison. Just a mild poison. So Lucy, you also mentioned, I think you were talking about ginseng weed and saying that it, it looked like the red kind of red pepper flakes you might sprinkle on a pizza the seeds do the seeds do if if you were uh if if you were 
not that you would, wanting, wanting to kill somebody with an, another one of these plants and disguise either the, the leaves or the seeds as some food item, you know, maybe a spice, what, which would you pick or which ones would you pick? What I would do is I would take all the different poison plants that were in my yard and I would dry them and then I would put them in my coffee grinder. I have a special coffee grinder just for poison plants and grind them <laughs> up and they look like Italian seasoning mix. Wow. And just put yeah. it on top of the food? Put it in the soup, put it in the olive oil that you use to dip your bread in, put oh. it in salad dressing. You know those bottles of Italian salad dressing and they have all the little yeah, yeah. things that yeah. are at the bottom? Very tasty. That's exactly what it looks like. Oh, oh my Lord. Just don't grind your coffee in that coffee grinder, Lucy. I have a special oh, one just for the poisons. And I, you don't put, in my house, the poisons live in the kitchen. That's where the poison, the toy cabinet is. It's a, a locked floor to ceiling cabinet that's next to my uh, regular cabinet that I store everything else in. So in my house, you don't use anything that's not labeled. Now, I because I grind up all of those leaves and then I, I take it around if I'm doing a talk and I say, well, what does this look like? And everyone says it looks like Italian seasoning mix or oregano or ground cumin or anything like that. And um, I say, no, this is actually a collection of all the poisons from the backyard, which is gives you a mixed overdose so that the symptoms aren't generally recognizable as one specific poisoning or mm. poison. You get this mixture of different things and mixed overdoses are significantly more effective than single drug overdoses. Wow. Just but the ER can't figure that. out what it is. When they go to the ER, you can't figure out what's wrong with them. Right. It would be very difficult, much harder to figure out because if you have one plant that dilates your pupils and another plant that constricts your pupils, well, then they're kind of offset each other, but you're still going to see some of the toxicity from both of them. I love that. Your detective might, must be on the ball, man. Somebody asked the... Somebody. The most, most common mistake question. The most common mistake is thinking that poisons kill you right away. Uh, even the fastest poisons, the poisons that, there are poisons that will kill you on the indrawn breath, but that is very rare, would be very hard to administer. Um, usually you see those in industrial settings. Um, Hydrogen cyanide kills within two or three minutes, depending on the dose. Um, hydrogen sulfide can kill on the indrawn breath. The famous story in Texas is that um, there was an oil refinery and they had been storing oil in a container and they drained it out and it was supposed to be cleaned out and someone had gone in there without the protective equipment necessary and fallen down dead. Somebody walks mm -hmm. past the doorway, sees the person in there, runs in there to grab them and drag them out because that's the first rule of uh, poisoning by inhalation is get them to fresh air and they fall mm -hmm. down dead. 
I believe the mm. record is seven dead bodies before somebody thought maybe we shouldn't run in there to try and Jeez. grab them and drive them out. My God. Oh, so, so otherwise, the people die slowly, like a week, a couple days, if it's plant-based. It can plant be based. anything between 15 minutes or six months or oh, six years. Oh, wow. Okay. So there are poisons that will take years, and there are poisons that will take months. And the thing about a poison that takes something longer than an hour or two is that you've gone on about your normal life. You've moved away from the place where you were poisoned. You aren't in uh, exposed to the same place. So even if you look around for the poison, you may not find it because you're not in the same place where you were poisoned in the first place. And that mm. is one of the things that are, are about uh, poisons. You would think that for a mystery writer, this is true in real life as well as in mysteries that you need a scene of crime but if somebody doesn't die for a day or so and they have to go and have an autopsy well the scene of crime is usually gone it's been cleaned up um, mm. you may not even know where the scene of crime was so mm. if you don't have a scene of crime then it's very hard to investigate the poisoning because you don't have uh, pristine samples to take you you just don't have anything wow that is so cool sounds like a wonderful way to kill somebody it is the way i'd kill somebody and not get caught and the toxicology <laughs> the real life toxicology literature suggests that somewhere around 80 to 90 percent of poisonings are not detected they are simply buried wow. as natural causes you get caught when you kill multiple people, when you act oh. inappropriately, when you get drunk in a bar and brag about it. Oh, jeez. Wow. You know, well, if, you're, so interesting. if you're poor Mrs. Smith, her husband died, and then you kill seven more people, it's poor Mrs. Smith, you know, her husband died, and then her stepchildren died, and then her mother-in-law died. <laughs> well, then they're going to probably dig deeper a little bit. <laughs> and it goes so. Uh, from being oh poor Mrs. Smith, uh, you know everybody around Mrs. Smith dies. <laughs> I remember hearing about one of those type of cases, and and the uh, the wife was a nurse who had um, doctored her husband's coffee for quite a while with with eye drops. And, yes, they uh, do that. Consistency. So that's actually one of the old wise tales of, of how to get your husband to leave you alone. <laughs> but, um, you know, think of uh, famous poisoners. They weren't ever caught on the first or second case. They were Dr. Smith, who probably killed 650 people. You know, Swanga, who probably killed 32. Um, they're big cases, the multiple victims. Um, you know, if you kill somebody slowly, conservatively, cautiously, say I wanted to kill you with a cardiac glycoside, then I would give you a little dose and you would go to ER with maybe heart palpitations. And they would say, 
okay, you're, you're having some sort of heart disease. We recommend you go see a cardiologist. And I wait a couple of months and give you a slightly bigger dose and you go back to the doctor and you know, you're still having heart palpitations, but now you have history. And you, mm. if you do this a couple of times, you have history and it's getting worse, maybe mm-hmm. happening more frequently. Well, then nobody's gonna look at that as a suspicious death. You have mm-hmm. history, it's getting yeah. worse. Nobody's surprised when you die. Wow. That's crazy. Cindy, it looks like you were looked like you were gonna say something. Well, I was just I, I was just thinking about the time she at one of the malice um conventions when she was talking about water hemlock. And um I was interested in that because as a child it was like my favorite flower and I used to pick it all the time. And um and she was saying at that conference that the the uh, roots what the horses and cows eat and they look like parsnips and of course my mind went to oh you could have a stew and chop up the the roots and put that in the stew and then mix it up with other carrots and parsnips and things like that and um but you know then if the if the uh, on examination if the um pathologist went through the contents of the stomach could they determine the um or would they would they bother to try to figure out the parsnips from the water hemlock, would they, would they, would you get Only caught? if they had a, a reason to look. Because by the time it's been through the stomach, you know, it's been chewed up, it's had acid. So it's, it's pretty mushy. Um, unless it's in still in big chunks, it's not gonna be something that just jumps right out and says poison to you. It's gonna maybe look like a potato or a root vegetable or, you know, um, it's unless you're looking for it, you're not necessarily gonna be able to identify it. Okay. I mean, you might be able to tell a potato from a carrot because potatoes are white and carrots are orange but you wouldn't necessarily tell a potato from a parsnip or um, some other white fleshy vegetable. Yeah. What category is water hemlock in a poison? Um, Water hemlock sort of has its own little category. Um, Again, water hemlock has hollow roots with chambers in them. Um, It's grown in moist, marshy soil so it's not quite as easy to get hold of as some of the other plant poisons because you have to find the right part of the country where it will grow Uh, and then you have to go out and harvest it but um it does it isn't rare but you just have to know what to look for yeah like i couldn't grow water hemlock in my yard because i don't have the right kind of swampy, even if I were trying to make a, a swampy spot and watered it every day to keep the soil moist, it just wouldn't be the right circumstances. Texas is too dry, right? Well, you can have water hemlock on, on uh, creek beds and uh, around lakes. Fort Hood, uh, not Fort Hood, Fort Worth has a big lake up there and it is notorious for having water hemlock growing along its uh-huh. edges. But um, you need flowing water, you need oxygenated water, you need conditions that just wouldn't be right for the home gardener. Okay. Yeah, it's a wild thing. Yeah, I used to, I used to pick it, um, definitely. Okay. 
And this, oh, I'm sorry, Cindy didn't want no, to cut off. So I, I hate to, to, I'm looking at my timer and, and we're actually over time. So if we're going to, we could, uh, as we said, we could go on for hours and hours and hours, but we don't have hours and hours and hours. So kind of to wrap it up, Lucy, if someone has not gotten their question answered during this podcast, um, what are some books that you recommend as good resources? Uh, the books that I use every day, I have a copy in my car, a copy in my library, a copy by my bed so I can read at night. The books that I use all the time are Common Poisonous Plants and Mushrooms of North America. That's by Nancy Turner. That's actually gone out of print. So you, uh, you can still find it on eBay. You can still find it in library book sales, but it's getting harder to find. But it is the best plant book that I've ever used. Um, there are some poison plant websites usually associated with uh, colleges um, or sometimes with big hospitals, but mostly with colleges. Texas A&M has a website for poison plants. Uh, mostly they're colleges that have vet schools or med schools where they would be trying to identify them so that you can look something up on one of the websites if you don't have a copy of Nancy Turner's book. The other book that I use is called Poisons and Antidotes. It's um, by Carol Tarkington. She is uh, or was one of the directors at the Duke Poison Control Center. And she wrote a book and it has very good general information. So if you just need to look something up quickly and find out if it is a poison, that's the book that I would use for that. And if I wanted to look something up that was historical, there are several good books for that, but my personal favorite is Forensic Medicine and Toxicology by Dixon Mann, M-A-N-N. -N. And that is actually, uh, it's not copyrighted anymore. Uh, it was, my personal copy is from 1860, but the copy Ooh. that you can buy as a Kindle edition is I okay. think from about 1890 and it's less than $20 on Amazon. Because oh, that's fun for historic, Mally. That would be okay, fun Mal for historic there go, research. Mal there you go, yeah. Mally, we've got, we've got our resource. Hey. <laughs> That and is. I use Dickinson Man all the time if I'm asked a historical question because the what they knew about arsenic in 1870 didn't substantially change between there and say 1900. Wow, so that's interesting. So awesome. interesting. That is awesome, and I will put all those titles and authors in the show notes for anybody who needs to reference them. Um, once again, Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You're very we welcome. Really, we really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, who knows, maybe in six months, we'll have to do part two with a whole new set of questions. We can do arsenic then, my personal favorite. Mm -hmm. yep. there, you, there you go. We'll talk arsenic right. in the summer. <laughs> very this good. was great, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you for your time. You're you very so welcome. Ditto, you're welcome. Take care, everybody. I'll talk to you later. Bye. 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 And there you have it.
forgetting exotic poisons like curare or something dredged from the wilds of Borneo, keep your eyes open on your next walk around the neighborhood and you may find yourself surrounded by toxic plants and substances. Thanks for listening to this episode of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. Like what you heard? Subscribe to us wherever you're listening and never miss an episode. And before you go, would you do us a favor? Leave us a rating or a review, please. Just like with books, ratings and reviews help other listeners find us and spread the word. Tune in next month when we talk about, well, you'll just have to come and find out. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and above all, ladies, don't forget your lipstick.